troubling uh, the ones to whom Jude was writing, the ones that he needed to make an emergency uh, detour and talk uh, to them. He said, These are hidden reefs in your feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Now, we talked about those last time. We won't go back and rehash all of it. Uh, at the end, we were talking about the, tr- the fruitless trees. It reminds me of what is said in the book of Luke, chapter number 12, about a, a tree that was there that the man who owned it uh, had waited. He did not get any fruit off of it. He came and told the caretaker to cut it down. He said, no, give me one more year. And uh, if it doesn't bear fruit, we'll, we'll root it up or cut it down, and, and then we'll take it and burn it. But here, here, these are called trees that are fruitless, and yet they're also called twice dead. And we talked about that. Not only had they died, they'd already been cut down, and so there was no hope whatsoever of getting fruit from them. And now let's pick up in verse number 13, and he says, Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, as you notice in verse 12, he's using some metaphors to describe these false teachers and and using these picturesque things in order to, uh, to put a mental picture in the minds of people. And now he comes down to the wild waves of the sea. How, how was it these wild waves of the sea casting up their foam uh, of their own shame? What is it? What's the picture that he is talking about? Anybody ever seen sea foam? Now, now guys, I'm not talking about what you go to the park store and pay $9.99 for. Uh, it comes in a can. I'm talking about been to the, to the seaside, to the ocean, whatever, and you see the sea foam. Sometimes you, sometimes you even see it. I've seen it at the edge of a lake uh, up in West Tennessee. When we were up there, there was a fishing tournament. Um, and I, I didn't fish, but I happened to have to go because of one of the guys who was working there and putting it on. And I stood out there and I saw some, some it was just had foamed up where the waves had uh, along the edge of the sea had, uh, or the edge of the lake had foamed it up. But, but what it is, is, is the, the waves, the water, uh, works itself around, the, the wind or uh, whatever, works itself around, as you know, till it, it sort of becomes like egg whites. It, it begins to, to foam up. Uh, and in order for it to do that, there has to be some kind of what's called a surfactant and it's uh, just a, a bit of some kind of trash or some kind of uh, maybe a, uh, a film of some kind of petroleum or something like that uh, that the water itself wraps around and begins to, uh, to foam. But, but it, can, it can be green, it can be white, it can be brown, it can be yellow, uh, all numbers of colors. And depending upon what the surfactant is, it can be rather stinky. Can, can, can smell very, very bad. But here, Jude says that these false teachers are wild waves of the sea casting up their foam. He's picturing them, you know, at a normal, a normal seaside, you don't, you don't necessarily see the foam. You see the water coming in, but, but these are worked up. These waters are bouncing around, you know, splashing together and doing all of that. 
these these teachers, these false teachers are uh, are stirring up a mess. They are stirring up a shameful mess, and they're causing much damage uh, because of it. And so uh, they're casting up the foam, but the foam is the surfactant, if you will, is their own shame. It's their foolishness. It's it's the false teaching itself that they're bringing that that makes it a foam. You know, wouldn't it be nice if we could get teachers who were uh, and, and uh, could stir up a crowd, but uh, they themselves were stirred up enough in teaching the truth and spreading the truth uh, that that we were working up a, a foam, if you will, in doing that. Well, it wasn't the truth that they were using. It was their own own foolish thoughts and their own foolish teachings that they were using. And so you can, you can picture in your mind uh, the nasty mess that they were making in the church, not in a, in a church building, you know, making a problem there with, with some kind of physical dirt, but with the things that they were stirring up, they themselves were, were casting this uh, foam everywhere. Okay? Next thing that he says about them, the next metaphor that he uses in verse 13 is that they are wandering stars, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, what does he mean by them being wandering stars? Let me ask you tonight, when you think about a star, the stars move The stars move. Let me ask you about a certain star. What about the North Star? Does the North Star move? What is the North Star? Somebody, somebody just enlighten us a little bit. What is the North Star? What do you use it for? What, you know, why, why do we talk about a North Star? What do you use the North Star for? Navigation, Navigation okay. Now, why do you use the North Star? It, it's because it's there. It, somebody said it's stationary, but let me ask you a question. Why does it look stationary? Where is it located? Pretty much directly over the axis of the earth. And so it's the earth, as it were, as it, as it spins on its axis, you know, that star is here. And so... Because it's here on the axis and the axis is turning, that star never appears to move. Now, what about the rest of the stars? Do they move? Do what? There you go. They appear to. Why do they appear to? Because the earth is moving and they're at a different location, uh, uh, you know, different angle from the uh, from the axis of the earth, and so they appear to move, and, and yet in, in reality they're not necessarily moving because, you know, when I was a child we used to go outside and we'd look for the Big Dipper and we'd look for the Little Dipper, you know, all of those, and we'd talk about them, but I hadn't looked lately, but I think they're still up there. And so they haven't, they haven't moved out of their places. You say, well, why are you talking about stars that don't move? And yet the Bible talks about wandering stars. 
What is it that Jude is having reference to? Uh, if he's not talking about a star that's in a fixed location, like the stars that we look up into the heavens and see, what is it that he's having reference to? Well, has anybody ever seen what we call here in the South a shooting star? Anybody ever seen a shooting star? Now, when you see a shooting star, what happens? It appears that that, it's not really a star, it's a meteorite of some kind, but that thing comes in and, and you see a flash of light for about how long? Most of them. Some of them are longer, a little bit longer, but you, you got a second or two and, and what happens to them? Do I? And we understand it burns up, but they flash across the sky and then they disappear, don't they? They flash across the sky and they disappear. That's what Jude seems to be talking about. They're wandering stars. They're like, they're like meteors, as we would call them, or meteorites, coming through the night sky. They're there, and yet... In just, a, in just a short time, boom, they're gone, okay? Now, they may stir up a lot of foam while they're there. They may cause a lot of trouble. They may even cause people to lose their soul, and their, their influence may be a long-term thing if it's not dealt with within the church. But for them, they're only going to be there for a short time, now, even if we, you and I, live to be 100 years old, in the grand scheme of eternity, that's still just a very short time, isn't it? And so they're there for a short time. They're wandering stars. They appear for a little while, and, and then they, they uh, vanish away. It goes dark, if you will. That star goes dark. But Jude carries it just a little farther here and, and talks about these shooting stars, these wandering stars and says that for these men who are represented by these wandering stars, if you will, those who stir up the church with their foam of, uh, uh, of ungodliness and, and false teaching, he says something has been reserved for them. Now, notice at the end of the chapter or verse, he says, it is reserved forever reserved forever. So whatever it is that, that he's talking about is eternal. It uh, seems to be that he's talking about destruction. And, you know, if we just, if we just looked at it and said that he's... Uh, uh, if I just ask you what he's talking about here tonight, your answer would probably be... That, that's your cue. Yeah, but they're going to be, there's eternal darkness that is there. There's, uh, whatever it is, is reserved forever for them. So their punishment is going to be, you know, that little four-letter word, hell, okay? The place of eternal darkness. All right, but I want, us, I want us to focus for just a few minutes tonight, a couple of minutes, on the language that Jude uses. Notice, notice again what he says. They're wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The gloom of utter darkness 
has been reserved forever. Now, if you were in here with us, I know the ladies were downstairs, but if you were in here with us when we were back up in verse number 6, you know that we have encountered a word already uh, that is translated as gloom. Just jump back up there if you have your Bible open to verse number 6. Jude writes this and says, The angels who did not stay within their own uh, position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept eternal chains under gloomy darkness. When we were there, we talked about the fact that the gloomy darkness is a single word, but it's not the normal word for darkness. It's the different word that's used for darkness here. Uh, And down here in... John, uh, Jude verse thir- uh, 14, or 13 rather, we have two words. We have the normal word for darkness, and we have this other word that simply in verse 13 translated gloom. The gloom of utter darkness. We have basically two different darknesses that are being used by Jude. Uh, to describe the punishment, the, the place, if you will, of the punishment that these people will reserve. Now, why, why are you saying anything about that? Well, I think it helps us to understand the, the tragedy of the situation, if you will. When we look and we see that we have that idea of the gloom, we define that word as a shrouding like a cloud, a blackness, a darkness, a mist. In other words, it's like a a darkness that just encloses around you like a mist would. Now, he's not necessarily saying a literal mist or that it's a literal darkness that comes and and enshrouds us like a a cloud, but just as he is using metaphors here for the false teachers, he's using something to help us understand the eternal punishment. We think of hell as a place that's hot, don't we? Eternal fire. But we also think of hell as a place that is dark. Okay? Now, we've got the dark part translated utter darkness, but it's no different from the other words that are used in the New Testament and other translations that are used in regard to uh, darkness. Uh, It's just uh, uh, translated darkness in most places, and I don't know why they chose to use the term. There's not a word there for it. I don't know why they chose to use the term utter darkness. He, he, uh, it's the same word as darkness, but there's a, a, another word that's used that's translated outer. I can't remember the, off the top of my head the, the word. It's the same word that's used for darkness, though. But, the, but, but in describing it here, he, here's, here's how Jude sort of describes it. It is dark. 
Can you imagine the darkest place that you've ever been? Have you, anybody ever been down in a mine with no light or down in a cave with no light on whatsoever? I mean, you, can't, you can put your hand there, you can't see anything. Think about that as the darkness part. But then encasing that darkness, you've got another darkness. And so he's using a very descriptive language here. Darkness encased in darkness. If you could get out of that original darkness, what would you still find? Darkness. And so he, he's giving us a picture here that, that is pretty poetic, if you will. Darkness encased in darkness. Now, this past Monday, I was at a preacher's meeting and sat at lunch by Brother Vance Hutton. And we just happened to be talking, and not about this or anything like that, but he related a story that I thought would be sort of uh, help to illustrate a little bit of what, what's going on here. He said when he was a student at Freed Hardeman, he had a friend who was blind, couldn't see anything. He said uh, he, he and the, the friend decided that they one weekend would go out and eat. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up and I'll take you out so that you know, you'll, you'll be able to get out. You can't drive or anything. You'll be able to go and, and, and uh, go out and eat. And so Vance said when he stopped by the dorm, he said, uh, opened the door and said, it was as dark as it could be in there. No lights on whatsoever. Vance said, I hollered at him and he, uh, he answered back. Vance said, what you doing? He said, I'm studying. Vance said, why don't you turn the lights on? <laughs> Vance said, <clears throat> set it for thought. His friend said, I am blind. I cannot see. It makes no difference. You got the darkness of the blindness, but the darkness of the room. And so you got darkness within darkness, if you will. And so I thought about, you know, thought about that when, uh, when he said it. And I said, hey, you know, that sort of is a, a, not, a, not a perfect illustration, but it sort of helps us picture it. You've got him that's unable to see, but he is sitting in the dark uh, doing what Vance would have to do or any of us would have to do in the light. You know, he'd have to have the darkness. But he says these are stars, shooting stars, wandering stars. They're there for a moment, then they just poof, they're gone. But these false teachers even though they're there for a short time, their destiny, their eternal destiny, is punishment in everlasting darkness. Darkness encompassed, enclosed in darkness. All right, let's go on to verse number 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now, we'll go ahead and read 15, but we'll go back and talk, talk about 14. To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, 
It's also about these that Enoch. As you look at that and you see Enoch, who is Enoch? What do we know about him? Now, obviously, we know the Bible says here that he's the seventh from Adam. We're coming back to talk about, talk about that in a minute. But what do we know about Enoch? He's one of, the, uh, one of only two people that we read about in the Old Testament who were ta- was taken to heaven. He didn't, he didn't suffer death in the way that uh, human beings do, but he was taken by God directly there. Why? What kind of character was Enoch? Enoch was a righteous man. A righteous man. Anybody remember Enoch's son? Anybody remember Enoch? Remember his son? Methuselah. Methuselah. What do we know about Methuselah? Well, he lived to be 969 years old. And it's very possible that he died in the flood. So we don't know a whole lot about him, but we know something about his daddy. We still don't know a whole lot about his daddy, but what we do know about his daddy, we know he was an exceptional man, right? For God to actually take him home, take him to heaven without death, suffering death. And so that's the Enoch that Judah's mentioning here, but what book in the Bible did Enoch write? Somebody said it over there. He didn't write one. Enoch didn't write one. Well, Jude says that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones. Because Enoch didn't write a book that's called Enoch in the Bible that we have, some have questioned. Jude, where did you get the saying? Where did you get what Enoch said? And to answer that, some critics have said that, well, it had to have come from what's called the book of Enoch. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the book of Enoch tonight, but the book of Enoch is what is referred to in, uh, in its long form as being one of the pseudepigrapha books. Pseuda, pseudo, we would have that. False writings. One of the false writings. And there are a number of those. Uh, the book of Enoch, there were fragments of the book of Enoch that were found. You may be familiar with the, uh, the term the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran? over in the Middle East. Uh, Many of those have been translated and people can read those, but there were fragments of the book of Enoch that were found at at Qumran uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And and yet it's a book that appears to have been written possibly even after the book of Jude. But there is a statement within the book of Enoch that is very similar to the one that Jude uses here. And so that has prompted people to say, well, there, there, there are two conclusions that we can draw. Number one, the book of Enoch is ex- inspired or 
Jude really can't be trusted with his inspiration because he copied from the book of Enoch. Now, I would beg to, to differ. Neither one of those conclusions is, is necessary. There's no reason to come to either one of those conclusions. Let me see if I can help us out. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 17 at verse 28. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Now again, remember as you're reading this that the book has been classified, what we know as the book of Enoch has been classified as a, as a false writing, a pseudepigrapha. Okay? But it's a false writing. But look at Acts 17, 28. Somebody read it out loud for us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of his own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Okay, who, who is speaking there? Paul. Paul. And, and Paul, did you notice what he does with the poets? What does he do? He quotes the poets, does he not? Does that make them inspired? We've got an inspired apostle who quotes uninspired poets. That doesn't make them inspired. That just makes what they said truthful on this particular thought. Same could be true with Enoch, could it not? Or even the book of Enoch. Had it been written prior to the book of Jude, and he perhaps was familiar with it, but I think there's still something else we have to take into consideration. We have to understand that Jude had to have some backup in order to understand, even if he got it from what we call the book of, uh, of Enoch, he'd still have to have some confirmation that what was said was right, would he not? Now, where would Enoch get or rather Jude, get that idea. I want you to notice here, the Bible says that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, did what? Prophesied. Who prophesies? A prophet. Does the Bible ever say that Enoch was a prophet? Is there any, any place where we read in the Bible that calls Enoch a prophet? This is no, and that would be correct. No, there's no place in the Bible except here that says Enoch is a prophet. Prophets prophesy. How did Jude know that Enoch was a prophet and what he prophesied? Now, before you answer that question... Let's think something through. Go to the book of Second uh, Peter, chapter two, at verse number five. Now, while you're turning there, simply remind us again tonight that Second Peter and the book of Jude are, you know, pretty well parallel books in what is written. But I just want you to notice something in verse number five. 
Again, whoever gets there, read it out loud for us. And did not spare the ancient children, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Okay. What did Peter say about Noah? What did he call him? A preacher of righteousness. Before we talk about that, look at verse 7. Brother Ronnie, if you got verse 7 there of 2 Peter. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. What did he say about Lot? He was, a, he was righteous, but he was also... King James said he was vexed. New or English Standard says disturbed. <coughs> Does the Bible ever say anywhere else that Noah was a preacher? How did Peter know it? How do you know he was a preacher? Does the Bible ever say anything else about the thoughts that Lot had about Sodom and the things that he saw that went on day by day as Peter talks about it in verse number 7. Does the Bible ever say anything about it? Anywhere else? How did Peter know the thoughts of Lot's heart? How could he know about Lot? How could he know about Peter? I mean, uh, Noah. By inspiration. God told him. God confirmed it. How could Jude know what Enoch prophesied, even though it's not written down as a written prophecy? How could Jude know what Enoch prophesied all the way back nearly to the beginning of the world without having to have read it in a book from the same place that Peter, who's writing a pretty much parallel book, from the same place that he could get his information about Lot and Noah. Don't let some ungodly, unthinking, Bible critic, try to take your faith away. Study these things through to make sure you understand because truth is open to investigation. And when you think things through, when you study things through, you can understand that God handles these things. Now, even though the Bible doesn't say he was a prophet, don't we know something about Enoch's character? Ain't that the kind of prophet, person you'd want telling others about what God wants? And so uh, there we shouldn't, shouldn't have any doubt about his character, what he has to say in regard to that. Okay? Now, very quickly, because our time is running out, what else does Jude say? Again... And I wanted to establish the inspiration part. What else does Jude say about Enoch in verse number 14? 
that's what he said. We'll come back and we'll talk about that next week because we're going to run out of time. What else does he say about Enoch? What other fact does he give about Enoch? He is the seventh from Adam. Why is that important? Why is that important? He helps us to establish a Bible timeline, doesn't he? You know there are people, you do realize there are people who who try to account for millions of years in the creation of the earth. And so they've got what they call this gap theory. Some of these people that, that we read about in the Bible, you know, it was a long time. There had to be generations upon generations that are coming in between them in order to get enough people, you know, uh, yeah, I believe in Adam, but, but we still have to have this all these millions of years. What does the Bible say? He is the seventh from Adam. Now, when you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, what do you find? You find the generations. Okay, and so you got Adam, and you got Seth, and you trace it down, and if you count the way that the Hebrews would have counted, the Jewish people would have counted, when you pop up on Enoch, how many you got? He is number seven. What else does Genesis chapter 5 do for us? Not a, what do you say? Tells us their age. All the days of were X number of years and they died. Do what? Yeah, when the child was born and all those kind of things. So you got a timeline, a biblical timeline helped by this little one word, two word statement, three words, seventh from Adam. I can count. Seventh from Adam. Just a casual statement that we might miss the importance of that will help us when we deal with people who are trying to mix false science with Scripture. So he says he's the seventh from Adam. All right? So he helps us to establish the, the accurate Bible time. How could he do that? How could he do that? The same way he could tell us what Enoch, who he calls a prophet, said so many years before. Where did we say he got it? By inspiration. All right, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about the ten thousands of his holy ones next week. Just a couple of things that, that he says there, and, uh, and we'll pick up with that next time.